This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Radio Dispatch, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, On the Media, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And get ready because you are either going to love this one or you are going to hate it. Ralph, over the past six weeks or so, maybe even longer, my inbox has been flooded every day with emails titled, and these are the actual titles, Urgent, Doom, Scary, Troubling News, Sadly, Lost for Good, Deep Trouble, and this one, Kiss All Hope Goodbye. Thankfully, these are not text messages I'm getting from my daughter at college. These, <laughs> these are from the Democratic congressional candidates asking for money to fend off the Koch brothers or John Boehner's $4 million ad buy. And it seems to be all about outspending the bad guys. What is going on here? Well, I don't think it's a good strategy for the Democrats, which is why they're not landsliding the worst, most corrupt, cruel, ignorant, vicious Republican Party in the Republican Party's history since 1854. I mean, the Democrats have compiled votes uh, that the Republicans have taken and passed bills in the House of Representatives, for example, that you wouldn't believe a party would dare do. They're opposed to the legislation against violence against women. They're opposed to programs to help poor children. They're opposed to health and safety regulation. They don't have anything to replace Obamacare which would leave more people uncovered. They want more war, more soldiers abroad, more subsidies and gifts to Wall Street, weaker enforcement to protect consumer protection standards. They ignore the minimum wage. They don't want to raise the minimum wage for 30 million people who are making less today than workers made in 1968, inflation adjusted. They like a corporate Swiss cheese tax code that allows companies like Verizon and General Electric to make billions of dollars a year and not pay any federal income tax. They should be landslided. Well, when you look at the mail-ins you talked about, Steve, you can see why. They're off-key, the Democrats. Number one, they talk in terms of the Koch brothers and John Boehner. Most people don't even know who these men are, but they're daily ogres to the professional Democrats in Washington, D.C., so that's what they're reflecting. The second is they're always playing defense. A lot of their letters say, give us money, support us, we will save Social Security and Medicare. That's not bad for a couple of paragraphs, but you don't win elections by playing defense, especially since you've been crying wolf for so many years. You have got to go on the offense. And I wrote a column pointing out these issues and wondering why the Democrats are not going on the offense. Uh, For example, in Kentucky, Senator McConnell, who's the minority leader of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate, powerful guy, is up for re-election. And a young candidate, Allison Grimes, is really giving him a run for it. At one time, she was a little ahead in the polls. She's now about four to six percent behind. But why is she behind? McConnell represents all these ignorant, evil, violent, crooked, corrupt manifestations of a corporatized Republican Party. I mean, he shouldn't even be in the running. Well, number one, she's avoiding talking about the great relative success of bringing 
hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians under health insurance, under the Affordable Care Act, because she doesn't want to associate with Obama, who is not that popular in Kentucky. And as a result, Kentucky, which has been comparatively a real success, they have reduced the rate of health uninsured in Kentucky from about 22% to a little under 12%. And that's thousands of people, lots of human interest. She could associate with a number of people who say how relieved they are that they now can get medical care for long postponed ailments for themselves and their family. And then the conclusion can be, well, is this what you want to eliminate, Senator McConnell? Devastating. The second thing she's not making enough of is restoring the minimum wage. There are hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians making less today. The federal minimum wage is seven and a quarter. So they're making, you know, minimum wage, seven and a half, eight, nine, ten dollars, no benefits, no paid sick leave. And wouldn't they want a Senate candidate by the name of Allison Grimes to really go out there and make it a grassroots issue day after day instead of a throwaway line in a pamphlet or an off-key comment. I mean, people know when you're serious about helping them, when you're serious about being on their side. And so who's advising these Democrats? And this is where I end my column, and it really is pretty disgusting. They are advised by corporate consultants. Believe it or not, the main consultants to the Democrats advising them about their campaign, what to say, what kind of pamphlets to issue, what kind of mailings to do, how to ask for money, who to ask for money, is not done by the Democrats themselves, by and large, not the candidates. It's done by consultants. Now, catch this. These consultants to the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates around the country make more money from their corporate clients than they make from their political clients. And so they're in a conflict of interest because most of the time people aren't running for election, but all the time these consultants are representing the oil companies, the drug companies, the banks, the insurance companies, the gas companies, the electric utilities, you name it. And so they are not going to really do the all-out, good, plain, progressive, moral, ethical, dynamic, motivating political language because their corporate clients are not going to like it. So my last paragraph in this column is, my message to Democrats is, dump your corporate consultants. Just campaign for the necessities of the people and publicize those Republican votes crisply, widely, and repeatedly. That's really important. Can you give an example of how these consultants work? I mean, can you name check any of them? Well, they work by actually writing and preparing all the publicity, all the ads, all the materials. What you got from Nancy Pelosi, Steve, in the mail was completely done. It's probably unlikely that she did anything but briefly scan it. It's all done by outside commercial consultants. Now, there's one campaign consultant who is a real maverick, and he's the consultant who advised Paul Wellstone when Paul Wellstone was just a professor at a college in Minnesota, and his advice, his campaign, his ads won for Paul Wellstone, who became senator from Minnesota, and he was also the early advisor to Jesse Ventura when Ventura was nowhere in the polls running for governor of Minnesota on an independent ticket, and he won for Jesse Ventura. 
His name is Bill Hillsman. Bill Hillsman. It just happens that he's a maverick, and he also gets award after award by his peers who can't stand him. But they realize that what he does and what he advises is right. Now, I called him up the other day, and none of the big-time Democrats running for re-election have retained him. I, I mean, this is like a collective political masochism. I ache for the touch of your lips, dear, but much more for the touch of your whips, dear. You can raise welts like nobody else as we dance to the masochism tango. Let our love be a flame, not an ember. Say it's me that you want to dismember. Blacken my eye, set fire to my tie as we dance to the masochism tango. I was invited to speak at a, uh, and I don't think this will ever happen again, at a panel at Netroots Nation. Um, and and I, but I, I, you know, I, I truly, ignorantly made reference to Bill Clinton being a belligerent, pugnacious war president. And like, it was as though I had like insulted Grandma May or something. <laughs> people were like, oh no, you didn't. You know, it's like, and, but, but it was all like these younger people are like, Bill Clinton and war? I mean, it was, it was really kind of like, you know, I was sitting in a course on how to be the dumbest fuck on the universe. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, when it came to actual modern history, people were like, oh, Bill Clinton and war? You mean like people in their 20s? Or? Yeah. 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 But like, I mean, let, let's remember, let, let's look at the context we're in right now and remember this. So Bill Clinton comes into office in 1993. One of the first things he does is authorize airstrikes against Iraq on this bullshit idea that the Iraqi government had conspired to kill George H.W. Bush. So they, 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 launch, they launch missiles, they kill a, a brilliant Iraqi artist named Leila al-Attar, they bomb the al-Rashid Hotel, they, they killed a bunch of civilians. That's how Clinton started his sort of war foreign policy. Then Clinton gets embroiled in the war in Yugoslavia. They start doing airstrikes in Bosnia. And the thing is, like, about what the U.S. did, if you look at the, uh, at the war in Yugoslavia, what the U.S. did was side with Slobodan Milosevic, uh, who was the uh, president of Serbia, and they, uh, Hillary Clinton took Mira Markovic, his wife, on a shopping tour in, in Dayton, Ohio, during the, the Dayton Accords. They then imposed the most brutal regime of economic sanctions on Iraq, they initiate the longest sustained bombing campaign since Vietnam. They bomb the Sudan, and they blow up the largest pharmaceutical plant in East Africa. They then bomb Afghanistan, saying they're trying to kill Osama bin Laden, and end up killing a bunch of civilians. And then Clinton signs into law, at the pressure of the neocons who would take power after him, the Iraq Liberation Act of 1998, which made regime change in Iraq the law of the land in the United States. That was the Clinton presidency... You know, not to mention neoliberal economic policies, other thing. That's the Clinton presidency. That that is that. I wish Howard Zinn was alive today. Like he, I mean, the 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 people's history of Clinton is like wow, War Crimes Incorporated. 
So then, then Bush comes into office, and it's like, oh, Satan has, 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 has made his way into the scene. And it's like, none of this stuff existed before. Bush is bombing Iraq. Oh, my God, this is a war crime. It's terrible. Let's all get into the streets. You know, Bush wants to build up all these covert units and support the CIA. Oh, my God, it's like a scandal. But Bush and Clinton were, were part of the same family. Clinton handed off to, to, to Bush. The, the same foreign policy, the way that Bush handed off to Obama the same foreign policy. They, I mean, it's, it's, they're all part. If you look, Iraq to me, because I spent so much time there prior to the destruction of that country, Iraq to me is like a metaphor for everything else the U.S. has done in the world in like our relative, yes, I'm a little bit older, but our relative lifetime. Our policy has always been consistent in Iraq. It's been consistently anti-Iraqi civilian. From the beginning, was there a similar like? Uh, were there similar blinders from from uh, liberals in the '90s as there are now towards Clinton's policies? Oh, where people- absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Amy Goodman used to get. You know, I worked with Amy Goodman. Amy, we, like every week, we would get. Um, like we had these real weird people. They would send Amy. Uh, like these these like really rabid right wing uh, Zionists would send her um, lottery tickets. But with like red marker. I mean, they said they were blood, but I'm, I'm just I'm just going on the idea that it wasn't blood because the Ebola thing right now. But like it was like red markers written all over it, and they would send her these things saying that she was anti-American, a self-hating Jew, all of these things. Um, yeah, I mean, the Clinton people were genuinely astonished that anyone would think that what they were doing was something other than humanitarianism. I mean, Noam Chomsky wrote a brilliant book about the war in Yugoslavia called The New Military Humanism. And, and I've talked a lot about this idea of sort of democratic cruise missiles. You know, there's democratic cruise missiles and Republican cruise missiles. And what's the difference between the two of them? It's just who's, who's, who's launching them. You know, there's, there's, they're, they're the same war policy. I mean, I would make an argument, and, and you know, I, maybe some people would disagree with me. I think it's more damaging and devastating to our country and to the world when someone like Obama is doing this stuff than it is when someone like Bush is doing this stuff. Because when Ob- and, and it's, it's not necessarily militarily. Like, let, let's remember, Bush and company were murder incorporated. These people were involved with a systematic campaign to murder Muslims around the world. So, like, I'm totally clear about that. But when Obama does it, who's a constitutional lawyer, who's, who is this sort of Nobel Peace Prize winner, who is this guy that sold people the idea that he was against dumb wars, when he then buys into the myth that we're somehow going to bomb ourselves into defeating terrorism, that we're going to bomb ourselves into uh, stopping the threat against us, that's, that has generational reach in terms of the damage it's done. And I think that one of the happiest people right now on motherfucking planet Earth is Dick Cheney sitting in Wyoming fly fishing because <laughs> he just loves everything that's going on right now. I mean, he really, he really does because Obama's better at their game than they were because he can sell it to liberals.
President Obama's under the misconception that if he just gives in to Republicans enough, that things will work out terrific for him. So I'm going to give you three stories here that if they were in their own context and President Obama had never done anything before to appease Republicans, you might say, well, look, I can see that. Uh, but I'm going to give them all to you now. They're all just happened, right? To give you a sense of how much President Obama does this. So obviously they had some problems with the Department of Veteran Affairs, so that he appointed a new head. Uh, guy's a West Point graduate. His name is Bob McDonald, uh, but he's actually a corporate executive. Obama putting a corporate executive in charge. Hmm. That's strange. <laughs> of course. Now that's what he does all the time. He, this guy used to run Procter and Gamble. Now that's a little strange because normally you'd put a doctor in that role or uh, someone who's a general, etc. But I don't mind him going outside the box on that. Uh, but until you find out who Bob McDonald is. As I'm reading the article on it, they say, oh, John Boehner, enthusiastic support for Bob McDonald. I'm like, When's the last time John Boehner had enthusiastic support for something President Obama did, especially on an issue that President Obama's having a lot of problems with? And then one Republican after another, oh, Bob McDonald, Bob McDonald, Bob McDonald's awesome. Really? President Obama did something awesome. Why? Quote from the Washington Post McDonald has financially supported Republican politicians in the past, according to federal election records, including Boehner and 2012 presidential nominee Mitt Romney. I love how people think that Obama's playing thir third dimensional chess and and how he's a strategist and he's so cunning and he's so you know skillful and vicious. I don't know if you know this, Mitt Romney ran against you. So here he goes again, another Republican, another CEO in another important position. Okay. Well played, well played. You got him on the ropes now. So then we go to the patent office. Now that's a strange thing to talk about, right? But it's important. See, a lot of people are in favor of patent reform because they think things like pharmaceutical companies have patents that last way too long. That monopoly is understandable in the beginning, but then they stretch it out for so long that it winds up hurting uh, the health and lives of millions of people in this country, let alone in other places. Now, it's a legitimate argument back and forth on how long patents should be, but President Obama, of course, promised to be the president who did patent reform. So. Who did he just put in charge of the patent office? Well, let's go, let's find out. Uh, the Obama administration is set to appoint Phil Johnson, a pharmaceutical industry executive, say it with me, of course, as the next director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, according to sources. The move is likely to anger patent reform advocates given Johnson's past efforts to block legislation aimed at reining in patent trolls, and in light of his positions that appear to contradict the White House's professed goal of fixing the patent system. Okay, example number 1827, where President Obama does the exact opposite of what his professed goals are. Continuing here in this article, Johnson has also uh, opposed previous patent reform initiatives, describing them as almost everything an infringer could ever want. So if you say we should do patent reform, ah, you're in favor of the infringers, that's what you are, patent reform gone. There will be no patent reform under Obama. <laughs> Sweet little lies. He talks a good game. Ah, oh, man, yeah. Change, you can believe it. Where, where's that corporate executive that's going to totally kill all that change? Now, of course, he most famously did this in the case of net neutrality, but again, I can name you a thousand other cases where he's done it. Now, finally, in this case, they say there's been overwhelmingly positive reaction to this development among insiders who see Johnson as a strong, capable leader with extensive experience, both in management of patents at a major pharmaceutical company, as well as many years 
as a first chair patent litigator. In other words, the pharmaceutical industry executives love him. <laughs> oh, Obama getting tough on those drug companies. <laughs> now, finally, uh, we go to issue number three, and that's immigration reform. Now, Republicans say, oh, you're not. Uh, you're too soft on the immigrants, and because of that, all these kids came in. And there are real problems at the border with the number of kids that are being stored because it's gone up almost 100% in the last year, the number of kids coming in from Latin American countries that are actually not Mexico, right? Although I saw today, I conservatives on Twitter are like, yeah, way to go get those Mexicans. This actually applies to non-Mexicans. But anyway, <laughs> facts inconvenient. So, New York Times explains. Uh, President Obama will ask Congress to provide more than $2 billion in new funds to control the surge of illegal Central American migrants at the South Texas border and to grant broader powers for immigration officials to speed deportations of children caught crossing without their parents, White House officials said on Saturday. So the guy who is going to apparently soften immigration laws continues his record streak for record deportations. And now he's asked for $2 billion more to do more deportations. Again, in its own context, if this is the only thing Obama did, you'd say, hey, look, maybe there's some sense in that, man. You don't want to encourage these kids doing this dangerous trip without their family. And there's some logic behind it. I get it. But in issue after issue, President Obama thinks that he's going to win if he concedes. And in issue after issue, they use it against him. Just today in the Hobby Lobby case, Justice Kennedy said, well, Obama made an exemption uh, for churches and church-run hospitals and schools. So I guess, you know, that birth control and the Affordable Care Act making it cost-free is not that important to him. So since he made that concession, I'm going to broaden that concession and apply it to corporations as well. You give an inch, they take a mile. More on immigration. House Republican leaders chastised the president last week, saying his lax enforcement of immigration laws had unleashed the flow. Of course they did. So what does President Obama do? Oh my God, Republicans criticize me. White House official says, the uptick in activity at the border and the steps the administration has put in place are extraordinary. We are maxing out our capacities within the existing appropriated monies. Don't worry, he's maxing out how many people he can deport. Change, you can believe it. And I guess it's true. All the things you do. And all the things they say. About you. Bill Black was pretty unambiguous that uh, Bill Clinton's 1993 Reinventing Government Initiative, which he put Al Gore in charge of, by the way, if you'll recall, those of you old enough to remember the early years of the Clinton administration, a large part of that had to do with deregulating the banks and, and you know, cutting back on, on agencies in the government. You know, it was a very, very kind of Republican concern. This is the New Democrats. And so the genesis of 
today's disastrous economy and the crash and everything really, you know, it was put on steroids, certainly by 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 Phil Graham with Graham Leach Bliley and the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. But Bill Clinton enthusiastically signed both of those, too. But back in 93, he was doing Robert Rubert's work and Alan Greenspan's, you know, deregulating the banks. And so somebody calls up and says, well, you know, given that and how Bill Clinton has managed to make himself into a multimillionaire now since he left the, the White House, how could you possibly support a Hillary candidacy? And my point, and I, and I, we need to remind ourselves of this over and over and over again. There's no saviors. We have to save ourselves. This salvationistic thinking that is part and parcel, frankly, of most of our major religions. Jesus is going to return, say the Christians. Mashiach is, you know, coming back, say the Jews, of uh, some of them. Uh, Muhammad is going to return, say some Muslims. I mean, you know, this uh, this messianic, somebody will save us thinking migrates into our political world, and we see it in the in the business world. Oh, you, you know, it's it, this is how they sell us the whole this myth of the job creator, this nonsense about job creators. Oh yeah, hey, you know, if we if only the right guy would take over our company or would start a company. If only another Steve Jobs came along. Well, did you know that Steve Jobs was colluding with a couple of other companies to, to drive down wages in Silicon Valley and screw workers? So, yeah. Yeah, Louise just walked in and said, if only Obama would become president. We were all saying this in 2008. Then everything will be perfect. Right? Remember that? Or maybe in 20, you know, 2012. If only he gets reelected, then he'll be able to really be himself. There are no saviors. Franklin Roosevelt was governor of New York before he became president of the United States. FDR, the guy that I don't think anybody could successfully argue that FDR didn't save this country. And I'm not talking about World War II. I'm talking about the Great Depression. FDR saved this country, and he created the modern uh, social democracy, whatever you want to call it, democratic socialist, if you want. I know that the right-wingers will go nuts if I use that phrase, but there, you know, there is some truth to that. You know, Social security, the right to unionize, these are things where society's needs are at concern as much as any individual's needs, and therefore qualify as being at least in some small way socialist rather than libertarian, rather than just, you know, hey, I got mine, screw you. FDR, the president, with the help of Francis Perkins, his secretary of labor, and the new biography about her is really worth reading. FDR saved this country. <coughs> Excuse me. As governor of New York... His attorney general, whose name I don't recall, merrily let Wall Street get away with incredible amounts of criminal activity in 1928 and 29. 
Actually, I should go back and look at the years. I'm not sure what years he was governor of New York. But the, 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 the fact of the matter is that he was governor of New York when it was an incredibly corrupt state, which included right up until 1932. And he could have been a, just another corrupt president. It wasn't FDR who saved America. It was the people. It was we the people. I write about this in my book, The Crash of 2012, I went, or 2016. I went back and read the New York Times archives from 1933, from March of 1933. I read day by day by day, and I read most, I started with March of 33 when FDR was sworn into office and read right through most of that year. Spent weeks doing this. And there was a, a woman reporter, and I'm forgetting her name. This is all in my book, in the, in the crash of 2016. There was a woman reporter who had, she was one of the very first female reporters of the New York Times. She was a real force to be reckoned with. And she was writing these front page, headline, all the way across the top stories about the early FDR administration in the first hundred days. And she chronicled how every member of Congress was buried in paper. Their offices were buried in paper from the telegrams that were coming in from all over the country, from people saying, give him whatever he wants. FDR said, I'm going to reinvent this country. We're going to make it, a, we're going to remake it anew. You'll recall he said, you know, to some generations, much is given of other generations, much is asked. This generation has a rendezvous with destiny. People think he was talking about World War II. No, that, that was from his inaugural address. He was talking about the Great Depression. And the people overwhelmingly said, do it! And he did it. And so that's why I don't think, you know, I, I think around the margins, it matters if the president is Hillary Clinton or or Elizabeth Warren. I think going into it, it matters probably in a much larger way. And certainly the president can screw things up. Just look at George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. But if we the people are active enough and strong enough, it doesn't matter who's in that office. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. I've talked before about how my inbox has just been flooded with appeals for small donations from congressional candidates and progressive organizations. But a couple of days ago, I got a message from George Lakoff, 
Now, my wife is a big fan of George Lakoff. He is a linguist at UC Berkeley, and his best-known work is a book entitled Don't Think of an Elephant. And he writes about language and politics. And I'm not sure, but he may have even coined the term framing, as in framing the debate. And he essentially argues that conservatives have been much better at articulating their values than progressives because they tie their message to a moral view of life. More specifically, like, you know, Republicans tie their message to the moral values of freedom, personal responsibility. And to them, democracy is about liberty. And he says to progressives, democracy is about providing for one another, caring for one another. Would you agree with that, Ralph? Yeah, it's a general proposition that's interesting. He can give a lot of examples. And this book just published the latest edition of his paperback by Chelsea Green, publishers in Vermont, very progressive publishers. He points out that in considerable detail. I mean, that's one of his big themes. He's written a 600-page book on this. The father figure, the mother figure, the father authority responsibility figure, the mother nurturing compassionate figure. The Democrats tend to lean in that area for social services, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. The Republicans tend to be hostile to that. And they like, you know, law and order, rely on yourself, stop being dependent, and keep a strong defense, all that stuff that comes in under the rubric of words like machismo or militarism. I like his other additional approaches in this book. And just to give you an example, he says, when you are arguing against the other side, I'm quoting him, Mm -hmm. when you are arguing against the other side, do not use their language. Their language picks out a frame, and it won't be the frame you want, end quote. Now, for example, when the Republicans want to get rid of the estate tax, which is paid by about 1.2% of the people who are the wealthiest, the federal estate tax, a guy named Lutz, who's sort of the Republican Frank Luntz, yeah. Yeah, Frank Luntz. He created this phrase, death taxes. And it really flummoxed the Democrats because a lot of Fox News, a lot of right-wing columnists picked it up. Not estate taxes, death taxes. And I was once called up and said, what do I think of that? I think, gee, you know, if you're going to be taxed, it's better for you to be taxed when you're dead than when you're alive. And the reporters <laughs> laughed, you know. But the amazing thing about this is Luntz was so confident that he controlled the language and the use of words compared to the Democrats on behalf of his Republican promoters and publicists and media that he actually once told the Democrats what they should use instead of a death tax. He said, call it a billionaire's tax. And then he never picked it up as much as the Republicans picked up the death tax. They picked it up like tax on the wealthy. Anyway, in his book on page two, He gives an example. He says the Republicans use the phrase tax relief. Whenever they want to cut taxes, they use the word tax release. And they've got presidents using it like George W. Bush. It's widespread. And then he says, quote, think of the framing for the word relief. For there to be relief, there must be an affliction, an afflicted party, and a reliever who removes the affliction and is therefore a hero. And if people try to stop the hero, those people are villains for trying to prevent relief. So he talks about it as a metaphor, and I'm amazed at how inept the Democrats are, or progressives. They use the adversary's language. For example, I just complained to the public editor at the New York Times that the New York Times reporters and a lot of other reporters use the word detainee. 
That's all you hear now, right? Nobody's right. a prisoner. They're all right. detainees in Guantanamo, in New York prisons, in California prisons, etc. They're all like detainees. So, like you're just being held temporarily. You just that's being right. Detained. Temporarily, without charges, they're trying to figure out whether to charge you, arraign you, put you in handcuffs, throw you in jail unless you can pay bail. Let's see. There have been detainees now for 11 years in Guantanamo. I mean, when do you stop being a detainee? There are detainees in Mississippi jails and New York's Rikers Island, like for 10 months. They're thrown in for a tiny thing, like stealing a backpack, a student, actual case, 16-year-old student accused, thrown in Rikers Island. They forgot about him. I mean, he was there for months, mistreated for stealing a backpack, and he's still called the detainee. So when you use the word detainee, you are falling prey to the manipulative language of those who are part of the prison industrial lobby. They're those who want to put nonviolent criminals in for 20 years for having possession of heroin or marijuana, not even being a big dealer, and they want to get rid of corporate crime prosecutions against the big boys. You know, I want to hear more Wall Street crooks be put in jail. I'd even give them the word detainees for a while. <laughs> as long as they're convicted and put in jail like 90% of the American people want done. Another one that is irritant. What do they call companies who sell you health care? Providers. Like, yeah. Oh, isn't that a wonderful word? Provider. What does that imply? Well, that's like someone with great compassion doing it as a philanthropic gesture or exercise they are vendors they want to be called providers 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 and they have two hundred thousand dollar operations with the assistant surgeon making 117,000 bucks that's quite a provider isn't it so ralph you would call them vendors, vendors? yeah yeah vendors that's what you call them well there's a, you don't want to belabor this on on the program we don't have that much time Another one is, thank you for your service. That's the troops. See, they don't like to call soldiers soldiers anymore. They're troops. Troops mm -hmm. conveys a mass disciplined glob, right, that goes abroad and, quote, thank you for fighting for our freedom. Can you imagine a, Iraqis listening to that? Thank you for fighting for our freedom, defined by Bush Cheney as a criminal unconstitutional invasion of Iraq that blew apart that whole country and killed over a million Iraqis and four million refugees and completely crashed it and fed the sectarian violence that's going on today because we sided with one sectarian group against another and the revenge killing started. You see how the language is manipulated? And there's a Stuart Chase was a famous semanticist back in the 40s and 50s. He wrote on economics too. I grew up on his books and he, he once said, Beware of making the word the thing. And so when on campuses, you know, people say something politically incorrect, like an ethnic, racial, or gender slur, I mean, they really pay a price for that. I mean, there are people who have had to resign as politicians or teachers. Yeah. But I don't know anyone who's had to resign for not paying attention to their legal duties to enforce the law against criminal discrimination against women, blacks, Hispanics, denying them health care, not enforcing codes for housing where they have rats and fire traps and families 
die in fires. I, I don't see any of that. You see, when we change the linguistic manipulative mode and we make the word the thing, people get off. And so college students, for example, can be criticized whenever they use the wrong word, the politically incorrect word. When are we going to start criticizing them for not doing enough, as the students in the 60s did, against the wars of empire and against so many injustices? They ought to be a little bit measured by that. But the most amazing one, and I've talked about this earlier in the program, is the Redskins. I mean, there must be a thousand columns, articles, cartoons, editorials condemning the Washington Redskin management and Mr. Snyder for keeping that name Redskins. And it turned out that there were a couple of tribes that made it into a banner issue. I've never seen any of these writers who go nuts over the word Redskins ever write about what's going on on Indian tribal reservations, which is right. pretty, pretty bad in terms of deaths, injuries, sickness, unemployment, addictions, exploitation, uranium tailings piled up for decades, giving uranium workers, Indian workers, cancer fatally, etc. You see what I mean? So it isn't a trivial matter. we got to clean up our language, go for the reality behind these sugar-coating names or these offensive words. Well, my favorite example of framing or messaging is in two different ways to frame it, one good, one bad, is when Elizabeth Warren was running for senator of Massachusetts. She made a speech at a house party that someone recorded, and it went viral. And she was talking about how no one succeeds completely on their own. Everybody has gotten help. She talked about how public education and public roads and public police and fire protection all contribute to business thriving. And she ended by saying this. You built a factory and it turned into something terrific or a great idea. God bless. Keep a big hunk of it. But part of the underlying social contract is you take a hunk of that and pay forward for the next kid who comes along. Now, President Obama, shortly after that, he took that same idea, but he said it this way. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Now, Elizabeth Warren was lauded for the way she said it, and Obama took that very same thing and turned it into a negative and gave the Republicans the whole theme of their uh, convention in 2012. It's a perfect example, Steve. You couldn't have picked a better example and a better contrast. That's why, in conclusion, on George Lakoff's book, his subtitle is Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. And it's called The Essential Progressive Guide for the Issues that Define Our Future, Climate, Inequality, Immigration, Health Care, and more. And you can get it directly from Chelsea Green. Go to ChelseaGreen.com. To light a candle than to curse the dark In the eyes of the youth there are question marks Like freedom, freedom for the mind And so we don't see them, see them for their worth At all, that's why we lead them, lead them to these Wars and what is it we feed them, feed them Our impurities and who it is we treat them Treat them like the enemy, humanity will need them Need them like the blood we spill and we're Freedom, freedom for the hearts who feel we Mislead them, they hunger for the love we give But we cheat them, the guys beat them when all He wants is his freedom, so they defeat them Whatever spirit he's got, beat them, and they Teach them the rest of the world don't need them, and he believes it's a disease that he's even Put up your fist if all you want is freedom Put up your fist if all you want is freedom.
The digital revolution has not only pitted the traditional Washington media in a battle for audience with competitors, it has put them in a battle for an audience with certain key government figures, notably the President of the United States. George W. Bush used to brag about avoiding the media filter. Barack Obama makes his predecessor look like Mr. Accessible. A recent Politico poll shows that eight times as many White House correspondents think Bush was more open than Obama than think the opposite. And, as I discovered in an earlier expedition, the press corps can do little about it but few. Marine One circles in the winter rain and alights on the White House South Lawn. Returning from a staged event at a Virginia shipyard to gin up support for the administration's revenue proposals. President Obama decopters and strides purposefully across the soggy grass toward the Oval Office. Witnessing this extremely high-level walking are some 50 observers huddled under umbrellas and making small talk. Cameras click and whir in perfunctory unison. The return leg from Newport News to Washington No News has been duly recorded. Ladies and gentlemen, your White House press corps in action. Uh, in anticipation of the meeting Friday, the president did invite four leaders. Inside the briefing room, that's Press Secretary Jay Carney lulling his audience into a state of unconsciousness. As blogger Anna Marie Cox once put it, the White House is where news goes to die, or at least slip into a coma. I asked CBS White House correspondent Major Garrett about being disrespected by the administration. Walking dead seemed rude, so I used the slightly less pejorative term, stenographer. The president has a message. He's the leader of the free world, and his message deserves to be communicated. That is a prerogative of the presidency. Conveying that accurately is not stenography, and I don't consider that beneath me. The question is, what is going around him? Once upon a time, his was an elite circle, the only intermediary between the White House and the electorate. Those dynamics every now and then yielded genuine drama, such as the 1974 confrontation between CBS's Dan Rather and President Richard Nixon. Are you running for something? <laughs> no, sir, Mr. President, are you? Tens of millions of people tuned into what were then all three networks gasped at Rather's impertinence. But today's reporters and photographers have been marginalized by a gazillion other channels. Twitter, Facebook, the White House's ongoing blog, the Ask Me Anything forum on Reddit, and on TV, not much evening news, but plenty of Live at Five, David Letterman, and The View. The White House is now itself a kind of media house. Ann Compton of ABC News. They become publishers, they become journalists, they become their own advertising agency. Never mind one-on-ones with the president, says Compton, who's covering her seventh presidential administration. Most of the time, reporters can't even get access enough to shout out questions at a grip-and-grin session. We don't cover Oval Office photo ops. We don't cover many of the meetings he has when he meets with people on immigration or gun violence or the fiscal cliff, the meetings with Congress. It's been six months since I've even been in the Oval Office on my turn to be the pool member in there. To shut the media out to the extent this administration has, I think is a disgrace. A complaint that White House Deputy Press Secretary Joshua Ernest shrugged off. Sometimes the president's commitment 
to engaging with the American public means that there are some members of the White House press corps who get a little frustrated that they're, that they're not getting as many interviews as they would like. But at the end of the day, the president's responsibility is not to the members of the White House press corps. It's actually to the American public. In order to fulfill his responsibility, to communicate his priorities, the president needs to avail himself of all the opportunities to do that. Actually, the president's responsibility to the public is not to communicate his priorities. It's to answer for his actions. Hence, the PR strategy to answer easier questions. While the captive White House press corps cooled its heels approximately 20 feet away recently, the president sat down with anchors from eight local stations from around the country. Among them, Kevin Ogle of KFOR Oklahoma City, who didn't necessarily go for the jugular. You know, here I am, some local yokel from Oklahoma City, uh, getting to go up and interview the president, and we had limited time, and so there's not a lot of opportunity to ask follow-up questions, you know, or to take him to task on things. In other words, no Nixon versus rather <laughs> moments? No, it wasn't like that at all. Instead, Ogle passed along viewer questions, including one from basketball star Kevin Durant of the Oklahoma City Thunder. This comes from KD. Putting your loyalty to the Bulls aside, what are your thoughts on Oklahoma City's Thunder basketball team? You know who KD is? I do. <laughs> I've had a chance to play with him. He's a, he's a great guy. In contrast, uh, Susan Peters of KAKE Cake Wichita was fairly aggressive in questioning Obama's plan to cut tax exemptions for Kansas's big corporate aircraft industry. That's right after she handed the president a scrapbook she made of his mom's Kansas heritage. I wondered if she thought she and her local colleagues had been fully respected. Did you get the sense that they looked at you, all eight of you, like eight Ron Burgundies? I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> I don't know if they looked at us like Ron Burgundies, but to be honest with you, it was thrilling. It was thrilling being in the White House interviewing the President of the United States. Before I left the briefing room, I ran into E.J. Dion, inveterate political analyst for the Washington Post, PBS, and NPR. I asked him if this administration has perfected the end around. Well, I think all presidents try to get around the press corps, and now there are more opportunities to do it. But there is still a very large share of the population that's going to get its news mediated, no matter how much we talk about the irrelevance of traditional journalism, um, it's still a big enough audience that they have to worry about it. Yep, are we ready? And with that, Dion went into a briefing about the sequestration showdown for a handful of the press corps. On background, of course. So, no, the lights in the White House briefing room won't be switched off anytime soon. The place still plays an important role. We talked at length about the president's offer. But to understand how things have changed, one merely needs to look up at the podium. As Jay Carney reads scripted answers to a reporter's reporter's question, just behind him, next to the iconic White House seal, hangs a giant flat-screen TV, scrolling all the up-to-the-minute headlines. The source? the White House blog.
My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. I tend to think that the new media is still so far from where it needs to be to challenge the establishment. But, you know, I could be wrong about that, too. When we talk about the Internet making a difference, this is going to be a presidential election with new media entities out there that are powerful. And not powerful because they move and shake, you know, the system, but powerful because a lot of people under a certain age pay more attention to them than they do for the, you know, broadcast that used to shape the opinion makers of the nation. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can think of a few few places. How many of you watch Vice News and how many more of an audience under the age of 30 does that have than CBS Evening News or, God forbid, CNN? You know, give it another two years, right? What What sort of a difference can that side of the media make on this same issue? Again, the Internet, when we talk about that, it's a, it's a wide range of things, isn't it? It would be very interesting if... And this has happened in other periods, too, where a certain mood took hold. A mood that we really don't have as much to lose as we've normally thought. And that wouldn't it be the time to all vote together for something different? What's that old definition of crazy, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results? How many times are you going to try to kick the football, folks? How many times are you going to fall for the same line, whether it be change or whether it be, oh my gosh, the other person is so freaking evil, I have to hold my nose and vote for this other person. I mean, if you keep doing what you've done, you're going to keep getting what you get, folks. And remember, anybody who would come forward as a candidate and ask for our help via some Kickstarter campaign or anyone we would draft via some Kickstarter-like campaign is going to be portrayed as a curiosity first and then as they demonstrate any sort of threat at all to the establishment as a danger. There's going to find things in their past or their views, especially since they're anti-establishment anyway, that will be twisted and turned and in the very same way that the establishment media went after Gary Webb they're going to go after any entity out there that whether it's the new media or a bunch of things going viral or Kickstarter campaigns or whatever we're able to put forward against all odds, some candidate that was different, that made it in the debates and that had a fighting chance, the establishment would try to take that person down, you know, as best they could, right? You'll know you have the right candidate if the entire efforts of the powers that be get turned to taking them down. When you see Republicans and Democrats trying to take them down, that's how you know we've got the right man or woman. And let me say one more time, remember, eventually we've got to get to the point where we start thinking that gambling makes more sense than playing it safe. Right? I've seen people's willingness to do this get greater every election. At some point we're going to reach a critical mass, aren't we? 
We not only need a choice, we need to have the willingness on our part to make a choice, to vote for something different, to ally with Americans we may not agree upon anything with, except that the system is broken and we need to make some structural changes to fix it. And let's find someone who we think can do that. Is that pie in the sky? It certainly is, ladies and gentlemen. And if, if you're making me bet something, you know, amazingly serious, are you going to bet your life, Dan, on that happening? You darn right I'm not. I'm going to die in the Loyalist Cemetery in Nova Scotia. I don't take those kind of chances, you know, but maybe if we had some sort of a campaign where we'd all agree to take that kind of a chance, if we'd all agree to take that kind of a chance together, what if there was a Kickstarter campaign for the American Revolution, you know, that came out and said, I'll rebel against the British crown, if you will, if we get 85% of the citizenry to agree to do this, the revolution's on, right? You know, it's funny, I'm thinking in my head now about a Will Rogers quote. I don't think I've ever gotten a quote 100% right, Ben. Don't I always say I think I'll massacre it? But I think he said, we're all ignorant just on different subjects. And it's quotes like that that remind me, you know, I, I, I want to clarify the uninformed voter remark of a minute ago. Because, you know, that Will Rogers line is true. We're all ignorant just on different subjects. And my bias when I talk about seeing the world as it really is, you know, are for things like national security questions, foreign policy, you know, this secret government stuff with the CIA. Those are those are the things I know a lot about, and it's frustrating to run into so many people that have no idea any of that's going on, and you just think, God, we're doomed. But I know a lot of people on both sides of the major political aisle and a bunch of Martians and weirdos too um, who have different priorities, different subjects that they think are the most important, subjects that they give the same amount of attention to that I give to the subjects that I find important, right? And then if being an informed voter means knowing about those subjects, well, then all of a sudden I'm the uninformed voter voting poorly in the country, and they're the ones, you know, who are fulfilling their civic duty by being an informed electorate. So, you know, I realize that. But let's understand my main bias here. It's towards fixing the ability for all of our votes to actually matter. That's a unifying principle. If we're all playing in some sort of stock market here, and we may have very different views about investing, and there may be liberal and conservative investors that disagree vociferously on the way it's done and how to make money, but all of us need a free market that's actually functioning for our ideas and strategies to matter at all. We're all in this together. You fix the system, and then we have a level playing field on which to compete in the marketplace of ideas. Right now, the marketplace of ideas is an illusion, and our competing on it is a sport that divides us in this country, and gets ratings for radio and television programs and generates heat and all kinds of interest and money to politicians and all these sorts of things, but is not the determining factor in how policy actually goes. It's time we unite around the idea that that has to change, and we can fight over the specifics later.
this is Andon Zabal from Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I just wanted to call in and, and say something that a lot of people just haven't said on the media about ISIL and that I feel like is one of the most important points that we're missing. And that is that economically they're making money on oil. And just like the drug cartels, the solution is not to destroy the cartel or, you know, the terrorist organization because another one will just pop up. The solution is to take away their economic power. And, you know, in the case of the drug cartels, the way we do that is by legalizing drugs. And in case of ISIL, the, the way we do that is by getting ourselves off of oil. And I just feel like that point has not been made enough in the media or at all that I've heard. Rachel Maddow almost made it in the last show about ISIL, but, you know, she came short of making it. You know, she, she talked about Boko Haram and ISIL, but she didn't quite make the point that, hey, oil might be at the foundation of this problem, as it is the, every problem, basically, in the Middle East. And so, yeah, so, you know, I just wanted to, to make that point and to say that, you know, we need to start talking about getting off of oil every time we mention ISIS or ISIL or anything about the Middle East. We should say, hey, maybe we should get off of oil and spend all the money that we would spend on wars on that goal. Anyway, thank you for a great show and uh, hope to be a regular caller from now on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Jay, first-time caller, Sean from Portland, Oregon. Um, I just wanted to point out the, uh, the hypocrisy with, these, uh, with the modern-day Republicans and how they seem to assume or demand that uh, the government is supposed to somehow take care of the possible Ebola outbreak, yet during the last elections and, you know, during the current cycle, all they do is complain about Obamacare as if it's some type of uh, universal health care and say that it's the worst thing in the world. And they try to repeal it 57 times or whatever the number is. And it just seems like um, what they're fighting for is to maintain a system that we currently have in this country where you have communities where there are large populations of uninsured people that when they get sick, they wait to the very, very last minute to go to the emergency room because they can't afford it. And then they walk into a doctor's office on their deathbed. And I feel like with that environment that we have in this country with these large communities where a lot of people are uninsured uh, is the perfect breeding ground for Ebola to spread. So I, if they want the government to step in and do its job, then I suggest that they uh, maybe allow some single payer and uh, we could uh, fix this problem a lot earlier than uh, it has to go on. And uh, I'm done. Have a good one. I uh, love the show. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I'll be calling back. Have a good one. Hi, Jay. This is Maureen from Boston Suburb. I'm calling about another aspect of the Citizens United decision. Today, I erased so far, and it's not even noontime, over 200 emails requests for money for the upcoming elections. They were from everyone from Mr. Obama, Mrs. Obama, and through my Congress people, 
and Grassroots and Emily's List and Daily Cough and all the rest. And the gist of most of them is, oh my gosh, this or that pack from the right has been throwing a huge amount of money into a race and we have to counter that and can you give us more money? I'm just climbing out of the hole that I was dug partially by the 2012 elections and trying to keep at least some of the people afloat. And I'm on, uh, I primarily, primarily live off Social Security and my costs are rising a lot faster than Social Security is. And even with Medicare and Medicaid, my co-pays have gone up. Uh, they don't cover dental work. So, uh, as my source of income, real power, buying power has dropped, these demands have increased. And while I'm on a fixed income, most people are on tight budgets too. And we don't have the money that is being thrown around by the Koch brothers and friends. And yet we're being asked to give more and more money. My thought is there has to be another way to counter the the huge amount of money spent on the right besides are going broke on the left. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, that last message we just heard is one of the most heartbreaking I've heard. The idea of a person spending themselves into financial hardship by donating to Democrats in the hope that they will step up and actually do what needs to be done to fix what's wrong with this country is an absolute tragedy. I actually created today's topic and made today's episode as a direct response to having received that voicemail. And now I've even saved the activism segment for the end here as another direct response to that message. So now that you're informed and angry, here's a glimmer of hope to remind you that not absolutely everything is completely terrible all of the time. Today's update, May Day is underway. In case you missed the memo, there is an election around the corner. Things are getting contentious in fundraising and door knocking, and local nightly news is all panicked about scandals or breathlessly hand-wringing about who's pulled ahead in the polls. Even the so-called legitimate Democratic institutions seem to have gone completely off the cliff. The DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, for those who've avoided landing on that group's radar, is making even lifelong, super-committed Democrats unsubscribe and consider jumping ship.
The way they're going about asking for our support, aka our money, is almost as problematic as how much of it they seem to need, and their complete intransigence on how to dish it out. They're using tactics from the early days of email, making them look like they missed the strategies immortalized in movies like Primary Colors and Wag the Dog. It's no wonder people under 35 aren't excited about volunteering and loathe to get on board with electoral politics. It feeds into the disconnect that's part of the larger problem of money in politics, exacerbated by Citizens United and solidified by McCutcheon. I've held Lawrence Lessig's Super PAC to end all Super PACs, otherwise known as Mayday PAC, up as a possible remedy to some of the ills money in politics has caused. And today I bring you good news. Mayday is underway. They met their initial fundraising goals, and when combined with matching funds, they're now at more than $11 million raised on over 64,000 individual donations. This has enabled them to jump in during this year's election cycle, supporting candidates who favor campaign finance reform. Their objectives remain, A, to convince Congress of the salience of this issue to voters, and B, determine how best to intervene to move voters based on this issue. Obviously, like any group, they could use your money if you want to get behind their goals. Even more than that, they need something we're pretty good at around here. Amplification. Follow them at Mayday US on Twitter and sign up to volunteer at Mayday.us. Watch for the results of this week's video contest with judges like George Takai, Jank Uger, and Baratunde Thurston. There is guaranteed to be some buzz about the results. Oh, and they're backing candidates. So if you want something to get excited about next month, check out their anti-corruption candidates fact sheet on the website and learn about the eight reformers to root for. Mayday has candidates in Arizona, Iowa, Michigan, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and South Dakota. That last one is especially important as it could help keep the Senate out of Mitch McConnell's hands. Obviously, voting remains important despite our disillusionment and frustration with money in politics. That's part of what's so brilliant about May Day. They're looking for ways to reform our process, making it more democratic without telling us to disengage as that work gets done. The segment notes include the links to all of this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If getting money out of politics matters to you, be sure to hit the share button to spread the word about Mayday Pack and their candidates via social media so that others in your network can get involved and vote next month too. And you know, the last time I promoted Mayday Pack, I received a voicemail from a listener who was very nervous, scared even, about the strategy they're employing. The caller was in favor of Mayday Pack's goals of fundamentally reforming the system, getting money out of politics, but had fears that in the meantime, some Democrats may lose elections, which made him question the strategy entirely and wonder aloud about the potentially steep costs, quote-unquote, of supporting reformers above party loyalty. Uh, if you would like to hear my full response to him, I did a members-only bonus episode about it. It was one of my angrier diatribes, so you should definitely check that out. But here's the short version. As we just heard from Dan Carlin, when are we going to stop doing the same thing over and over again while expecting a different result? When are we going to stop being Charlie Brown, forever trying and always failing to kick the football? There are millions of people in this country who have no idea that there is a vision for reform being worked on by groups like Mayday Pack, Wolf Pack, MoveToAmend.org, and others, and they're going to keep 
donating to political parties because they don't know any better. But we do know about these alternatives to the status quo. We do know better. So if you feel compelled to donate your money somewhere in an effort to move us toward progressive change, then donate to groups like this who are looking to bring democracy back to America so that we will again have a chance to support candidates who actually represent the will of the people and not the will of their ultra-rich and corporate donors. That is going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing See you